0: Uh, the IPCC is, is an acronym for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, quite a mouthful. Um, and the IPCC was created around 1988 by several major scientists who had a vision that science was needed if we're going to go into a climate content- convention. This is right before Rio 1990, which began the process of the F- Framework Convention on Climate Change, which came after it, in 92. So the IPCC is a science arm. It's meant for the scientists to get together and do their best job of explaining. What's happening in terms of the science, what we see, what we know about, what the models say. And its goal is to deliver, shall we say, practical science for the governments to make some decisions on. So the original IPCC was fairly easygoing. The best scientists got together. They sort of picked who could do the work. Um, it was fairly simple. We, we, in the deciding who could author what chapters, you'd say, oh, I know somebody who can write that chapter. And we'd get away with it. And that would happen. Um, that was 20 years ago. Since then, it's, it's become more bureaucratic, as expected, and more cumbersome, but it has gained more participation. So originally, there would be five, six governments doing it. Why? Because Europe and the US and Japan and Australia were where the science was being done. And those people would basically run it you know, to get the science out of it. Nowadays, there's a lot more effort to get participating scientists from developing countries, broader participation. So the essence would be, in the early IPCC days, the US was half the author team, probably. okay, And it was appropriate, if you looked at the number of papers published, the amount of science being done, uh, but a lot of countries, of course, had scientists, but they had no research money. So part of the IPCC was try to build up the science, so every country felt they had their own scientists who could inform their governments. The latest one has the U.S. participation in one of the special reports on ocean and it's on the cryosphere, which is Antarctica, Greenland, and the oceans. The U.S. has probably got about maybe eight percent of the author team, which is exceedingly small. Um, and effectively reflects uh, the effort to broaden the base. What it means, however, and I will say honestly, is that um, the chapters used to contain four or five people who could write the chapter. Now the chapters contain 15 people, of whom four or five still write the chapter. And so it hasn't changed that much, but it's sort of increased the participation. And part of it has it's also increased the acceptance. So if the governments have their scientists involved, they tend to believe in the document, they tend to support it. I think the original vision in 1988 was that the IPCC would carry forth with the science separated separated from the governments, and that succeeded, that has been maintained. And I think without it, um, we saw a lot of individual governments doing their own assessments, and they would be not necessarily contrary, but they wouldn't quite overlap. Every government would say, well, we did the assessment, here's our result, and you have your own. This at least says the governments have to argue from a common science assessment, which is critical. And so in that sense, it has worked very well because there's not alternative climate assessments. We don't have one climate assessment from the U.K., one from the U.S., one from China. Okay, And that was where we were heading originally when the governments wanted their own. So the IPCC, in some sense, has made a collective knowledge base, which makes it much easier for governments to point to. So when people are doing arguments and the governments are arguing for various climate policies or whatever, they point to the IPCC and they say, look, it says this here. And other governments say, yeah, but I like this section of it over here. At least they're pointing to the same document. Okay, which same authors wrote effectively. So in that sense, it's worked. Okay, it has truly worked. It has become cumbersome in there. The latest IPCC assessment report, the sixth is coming online. The scoping meeting was May, this May of this year, and I attended and it was quite interesting. The battle is whether or not the IPCC has become bloated so much that it has merely become a textbook rather than a, sort of a cutting edge in terms of the assessment. It always ends up being cutting edge for the assessment, but the volume that it turns out every year, every four years or six, about every six years, is quite huge. Um, some of them have gotten so big that you had to have two volumes this thick because it no longer fit in one. publisher couldn't do it. Uh, it's going more electronic now. That helps. But unfortunately, if you go to electronic publication, it really doesn't keep people writing less and trying to say more. So the Policymaker's Guide is that one document that well, I'll talk about later. Um, that Policymaker's Guide is hammered out. After you have the 1,000 pages of the chapters, the authors put together a policymaker's guide. They try their best to say what they want. The governments look at it and go, eh. And their job to say is, well, I can't use that or I can't understand it. And so you have to go from scientists speaking their own language to scientists writing in a language that the governments can take to their ministers. I've been at many of these meetings where someone says, I can't explain this to my minister. I'm going to have to go. The people at the IPCC meetings are not the ministerial level, they're at the next level down carrying load, they're going to have to bring back results from the IPCC meetings and then explain it up the chain. And they'll say, I can't explain that one. Could you write it better? Or suppose I give you this word, will that work? So sometimes the governments do better wording, much better wording because they know how they want to use it. Sometimes they do sneaky wording because they want something else out of it. But in general, their goal is to make it comprehensible. I won't say to the man on the street, but to their minister, which is close to person on the street because the person on the street has similar science education to their minister usually okay they're educated but they aren't exactly scientists and they don't publish in the field since Trump is is threatening to pull out from the Paris Accord which you cannot do until 2019 or 2020 because of the various things you have to go through so the US is not out of the Paris Accord we have a threat that they will pull out and if the process works it will be another three or four years before we actually are removed from the Paris Accord So when that actually happens, I don't know what the result will be. As of now, um, there's no impact in terms of um, the science assessments. The science assessments, the US is getting pushed out just because of more and more countries wanting to have science representation, which is reasonable. And so that's a different issue than the Paris Accord. But the Paris Accord has put a stunning chill on government funding of science and I don't think we've seen it yet, but probably in the next three years, there may be a crippling effect on climate science being done in the U.S., not because of the Paris Accord, but because of the House and the Senate deciding to cut research funding in an area where they have normally funded. So that's the, I think it's more the funding that will kill us rather than the Paris Accord in terms of a science. a range of interesting I mean, the uh, most important is to actually use the IPCC in a way that you say, okay, if this is true, what do we want to do? What does it mean? And the IPCC has several large working groups. Some of them deal with just predicting sea level rise and whatever. Others actually work with communities and try to come up with what the impact will be on various communities. That's working group two. And working group three talks about the costs, how much it's going to cost to actually reduce CO2. So all of these put together, if you use the information, is quite a wealth for community activism. Okay? And community activism will work. I work occasionally with a CCL group in, in our neighborhood. and I talk to them and, and, try and spur them on. I don't have the oomph to do what I do and work to the CCL work, but I'm, I'm tickled by them. I think they're doing a wonderful job on, you know, the citizen climate lobby has done a very good job on pushing the, basically, they're pushing the science forward, they're pushing the issues forward, saying, why aren't we doing better? And I think that's what needs to be done and that's what can be done. So state and city level, um, certainly California with the economy size it has as a major statement, Jerry Brown has taken a very strong stand on this, that California will do what it can to curb its emissions and prevent future climate change. City level is smaller, but it adds up. Um, And the basic is that once you start having these practices in the cities and whatever, then you start developing people accepting them and understanding why they work and realizing that they're not onerous and that they are the good thing to do and it doesn't suddenly cost them all their jobs. And I think, so city ordinances help. Um, Long ago in the 1970s, uh, the ozone wars were going on and the original groups and efforts to basically phase out chlorofluorocarbons that uh, Sherry Rowland worked on were basically the cities. It was Berkeley, a few places in Michigan. Those are the ones that actually started raising the noise, raising the level, raised the flag and said, we have to do something about it. And slowly it got through to the EPA, which then did a little bit about it. And so effectively, you know, large, reasonable sized metropolitan areas do it. Um, I don't know whether it counts as a lot, but you know, the bag issue in California, the shopping bag issue, start as always start as a local either city, municipal, or county ordinance, and it's starting to work slowly but surely throughout the entire state as more and more people adopt it. So I think once again, um, everybody can make good choices in terms of climate change or in terms of what their impact is on the environment, whether it's the ocean or the climate. And everybody, once they see that happen, they see it can be done uh, and that you know, it's not harmful to them and effectively it actually does a world of good. A graduate student and I began a study to try to understand uh, surface air quality in the U.S. and Europe. We had 15 years of surface ozone measurements over the whole U.S. and Europe. We tried to examine them from a large-scale perspective of sort of looking down from space and looking at the size and scale. And we found out that the U.S. and Europe both have super pollution events that affect 1,000 kilometers. They last for days, and they move slowly across the country. And you can see them both on the surface and whatever, and they're quite evident, okay? And the thing that's interesting we found was that those events are the worst pollution events. The bigger and more long-lasting an event, the higher the ozone is. Okay? So when we go to a future world, we want to say, what's going to happen? Will these events become bigger? If we can actually characterize these events as actually becoming bigger in a future climate, okay, then you start getting very worried because even when you then cut emissions, you're still going to have very nasty pollution events. And we looked at it and we found for the U.S. and Europe with future climate models, it wasn't going to happen. They are basically not staying the same or getting better, which means that if we cut emissions, we'll get improved air quality. But in Southeast Asia, there was evidence in several of the climate models that some of these events, which were driven by meteorology, were going to get bigger and more intense, which is sort of a threat. No matter what you do with emissions, the air quality is going to go downhill, right? So I think, you know, when you start looking at regional effects, which are very important, that includes even which side of the fence of the freeway you live on, and people who live along freeways in LA, um, there's an immense amount of good work being done I don't usually. I work on more global scales, but I follow people who do this. There's an immense amount of work being done by South Coast Air Quality Management District. There's a lot of good, both science and regular and, and reporting and information being gathered that demonstrate, you know, particles how bad they are for kids, how bad they are in your schools. And I think the knowledge base is becoming large enough that people feel they can argue to act now. I'd say that the science is now getting good enough. You actually see the impacts. You can measure it. Um, I mean, one of the there's a recent report nationally that looked clinically that the U.S. improvements in air quality in Southern California, whatever, have actually reduced children's admittance for asthma and other things because of the reduction in ozone and other pollutants in the last 25 years here. So there's been an amazing, both not just we've seen the air cleanup, but there's been some health, clinical health studies to demonstrate that we've actually seen the health improve, which is really quite astounding. So I think most people have enough sense that you do not want to make a mess of your own state and your own city, and I hope people will fight for it.